Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting June 4th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with world-renowned James Randi and Scientific American editor Mark Alpert discusses his new novel, A Physics Thriller. First up, James Randi, as a top magician and escape artist, he went by the name The Amazing Randi. For the last three decades, he has supported sound science and exposed fakes who claim supernatural or paranormal abilities. The James Randi Educational Foundation has long offered a $1 million prize to anyone with such ability that is truly demonstrable. That money is still unclaimed. I called Randy at his office in Fort Lauderdale. James Randy, great to talk to you this morning. How are you? A pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I think that... Uh, we have to meet in person one of these days. This business of over the telephone sounds a little subversive, don't you? Well, think? we actually have met, and I'll I'll uh, I'll talk about that a little later. But uh, first, tell us about this meeting that's coming up in Las Vegas, and then we'll talk a little bit about your foundation. Well, this is the amazing meeting number six. Uh, we've had five before, as you probably guessed. It's called I Skeptic, and it's uh, subtitled Modern Skepticism in the Internet Age. We have uh, a wonderful, wonderful keynote speaker uh, this year, that Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's the astrophysicist that we all know and love uh, with the Hayden Planetarium. He's also a host of uh, one of the PBS uh, Nova series. So he's going to be our our uh, keynote speaker. And we've got Ben Goldacre coming over. Do you know the name Ben Goldacre? No, I don't. He's with the Independent newspaper in uh, the U.K., and you should look him up on Google sometime. Ben Goldacre is a very, very skeptical gentleman uh, who writes about science and such and uh, has, has always maintained a great interest in the James Randi Educational Foundation. We have Matthew Chapman. And now, Matthew Chapman, that doesn't mean much to you, but he's the great, great grandson of Charles Darwin, and he doesn't even have a beard. I have to ask him about that. Right. And, of course, we've got our good friends Penn and Teller and Michael Shermer and good people like that who will be helping us out. They do each and every year, and they're always very welcome. And uh, what will Dr. Richard Wiseman be talking about? Uh, Richard Wiseman is always talking about some uh, recent uh, project that he's got going in the U.K. He does wonderful things like setting up kiosks all over the, the U.K. Uh, in, uh, in department stores and whatnot where people uh, try to guess uh, which one of uh, a certain shape will be produced on the screen next, the testing telepathy or precognition or whatever. And guess what? Those experiments all turn out to be absolutely no. People get exactly what uh, chance would call for. So he's, he's going to talk to us about one of those projects that he's got going. Excellent. Now, uh, where can people find out more information about the meeting? And if they want to attend, what do they do? Well, if they go directly to www.randy.org, and Randy is R-A-N-D-I, that's uh, www.randy.org. They click in there and they'll look for uh, the amazing meeting and you'll see it in there and you can register right online. Now, skepticism in the age of the Internet. The Internet is a uh, double-edged sword because <laughs> there's there's so much wonderful information available, but there's just so much information, some of which may not be accurate. That's very true. And very true. You, you really have to check your sources and figure out whether something that's been passed along, we all get email every day, with these claims or stories, and so many of them are false. That's very true. So the double-edged sword is a, is a very good uh, way to look at it. Uh, I found that uh, such a thing as Google, which I consider to be almost supernatural, frankly. Uh, I uh, spoke at the Googleplex not too long ago, 
in California. That's an experience in itself, too, and one of these days we'll discuss it. But uh, Google, uh, with the enormous, enormous amount of information that it puts out every second of every day, uh, has to have an awful lot of garbage in there, too. And they can't be expected to, to clean house every few minutes. So they, they get an awful lot of nonsense in there that they just can't uh, get out of their system, so to speak. So uh, misinformation as well as information. So uh, take the, the good stuff and discard the bad stuff and get smart in order to be able to find the difference. I rely on Snopes.com a lot to, oh, yes. uh, to figure out what's, what's true and what isn't. Are there any other sites that you recommend? Well, Snopes is very meticulous about that. They look into each detail, everything that they, they print. Wikipedia is, a, is an interesting uh, sort of in-between situation, I think you might agree. Uh, it's got a lot of good information in there, but I have to go in regularly and check any place where my name appears and just sort of sharpen up or, or trim some of the corners on it to make it a little more accurate. But uh, I willingly do that because it is a great source of information. Yeah, one of one of the uh, pitfalls of celebrity, I guess, in the in the modern age. Yes, indeed yeah. it is. Well, I'm only a, a minor celebrity, but uh, hey, I, I I wear it very well. I think. <laughs> well, you you're not a minor celebrity around my house, where uh, I grew up seeing you on programs like Wonderama in, oh, uh, on, on WNEW in New York. Yes, well, I spent that money already, you know. <laughs> So uh, you were the amazing Randy back then, and uh, are you no longer amazing? Oh, I'm still amazing, but uh, I just don't use the moniker. Uh, I think that it, it sort of takes away from the dignity of the position of being the president of the James Randy Educational Foundation to call yourself amazing. I, I rather try to discourage people, although my close friends always uh, refer to me affectionately as amazing, and uh, they're absolutely correct. So how did the foundation get started, and what's the purpose? It's a strange story, actually. Um, years ago, uh, when I, I first got on the Internet, I, I got a little a bit of a, of a, a presence going there, and I heard from one gentleman from time to time uh, who just signed his name. I didn't know who he was. And uh, then he suddenly got my attention when he wrote me and said, by the way, he said, I give away a lot of money every year. Perhaps I should give some to the uh, the the foundation and we had just started the foundation and I thought that was an excellent idea but I insisted in going all the way uh, to Virginia the state in which he lives in order to confer with him to make sure that we were really of, of the same uh, uh, philosophy general philosophy yes but specific philosophy and we hit it off very very well from the very beginning this is a gentleman who is anonymous now and will not be named he who will not be named and um we, as I say, we hit it off very, very well, and he funded the, the foundation, and he's, a matter of fact, the one who eventually gave us the million dollars to put up as the prize, the uh, the great carrot that we dangle in front of the so-called psychics in order to entice them to prove their case. And the foundation, though, has, has uh, grown since then into sort of a general rationalist program. Yes. Oh, yes, we've... We've uh, we've evolved, if you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> no, please, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, well, we are too because we have done it. Uh, we have evolved over the years. We've been in business over ten years now, and we've had the uh, the million dollar offer out for ten years as of this last March the sixth. It will be discontinued on March the sixth, uh, two years from now, uh, because it's just simply too much of a, a pain in a certain part of the anatomy in order to continue it. It takes too much time. 
and it really isn't as productive as we thought it would be. It seems that everybody's offering a million dollars for everything these days. <laughs> the X Prize for uh for uh psychic powers. Exactly. Or psychic claims or abilities or whatever, yes. They don't actually have to have psychic powers. They just have to demonstrate that such things exist. And we don't claim that there isn't such a thing. We allow them to claim that there is, and then we say, fine, prove it, and you get a million dollars. And you'd be surprised. There is not a lineup right outside. I'm looking out the window here. No, there's no lineup this morning. In fact, there wasn't yesterday. In fact, there never is a lineup of people hammering at the door trying to get at the million-dollar prize. Not to mention, if if I had psychic powers, your million dollars would be uh, pocket change. <laughs> yeah, oh, indeed. Indeed, certainly. I would hope so. Yeah, I'd, I'd be in Las Vegas, but not for your meeting. <laughs> Uh, I had mentioned that we actually did meet once. I was in the audience at a AAAS conference, and you were the speaker. And I happened, I think I happened to sit in this seat. Uh, maybe you directed me to it with the power of your mind. I don't know. But uh, I was called on, and you had a uh, column of newspaper print, and you were moving your hand up and down the print, and you cut that column exactly where I told you to from about 50 feet away. And then when you made the cut, there was a, a particular line of text right above the cut, and you told me to turn the chair over that I had been sitting in, and that line of text was written on a piece of paper on the bottom of that chair. I'd so, say that's a miracle of a semi-religious nature, wouldn't you? Well, it, it, it obviously stayed with me. Now, as a, you know, that you have been accused of, of being a charlatan in that some people think you really do have psychic powers, but you make believe it's just tricks. No, I'm not really a witch. I, I, I admit that. But uh, on the other hand, why don't you ask me how I did it? How'd you do it? With great skill and dedication. Funny you should ask. <laughs> well, James Randi, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Great, great luck with the uh, with the meeting, and uh, I hope we talk again. Well, luck has nothing to do with it. It'll all depend on the registration. <laughs> Great skill, and uh, luck is the residue of design, as Brand Spicky said. There you go. Said. Okay. Thank you so much. Because there's no nicer wits than you. Ben Goldacre's website is www.badscience.net. And for more on James Randi and the amazing meeting in Las Vegas, just go to www.randi.org. Next up, Siam's Mark Alpert. He's been an editor here for a decade, but in his spare time, he wrote a techno-thriller novel with lots of physics. The book, called Final Theory, came out this week. I spoke to him in his apartment in New York City. A lot of the characters in your in your story read Scientific American. Yeah, and I put a lot of my uh, Scientific American articles into the novel because, you know, that's what you do when you... Know, you put everything that you have and you dump it all in there and through the magazine I've, I've seen some interesting things like virtual reality combat systems and particle colliders and all this stuff is good stuff for thrillers when did you actually have the idea to write this in fact let's back up because listeners don't know what the book's about give them give them the idea of what the book's about without giving too much away sure sure well it's based on the idea that albert einstein in the second half of his life was working on coming up with a theory of everything, a unified theory that would explain all the forces of nature. And uh, the, one of the tragedies of his life is that all of his published attempts to do this didn't work. And uh, scientists are still struggling with coming up with a, a unified theory. Um, well, the premise of my novel is Einstein didn't fail. He actually succeeded. But he realized 
that this theory was so powerful it would lead to weapons that are even worse than atom bombs. And so he had to hide the theory. He parcels it out to his assistants. And the thriller is about how that secret is starting to come out. Right. It's coming out along with intestines and chunks of brain and... Well, there's a fairly brutal mercenary, uh, uh, and uh, and the government is not too uh, uh, easy either. So um, it, it, there's science in this thriller, but there's also the typical stuff that you see you read about in thrillers, like car chases and gun battles and that sort of thing. There's there's science in the plot, but there's extra science. For example, uh, you have a character's rib breaking, and rather than just say the rib broke, you talk about the the tensile strength. Of the rib right. had been violated. Right, right. Well, I, I tried to get inside the scientist's mind, and that was part of the reason why uh, they think in terms of centimeters and meters instead of feet. You know, I was trying to get inside their heads a little bit and uh, seeing – at one point he, in the very first chapter, this, this Professor Kleinman, he looks up at the uh, – at the, uh, the, he's in a bathtub being drowned and he sees these, these ripples on the surface and he thinks, oh, a Fourier series. <laughs> that, right. that would occur to him, I guess. So uh, – when did you get the idea that, you know, all this stuff I know about physics could turn into a, a novel? Well, it was when we were doing that special issue back in 2004 on Albert Einstein, uh, and I was reading a lot about his life then, and uh, I just got fascinated by uh, the idea of, you know, you know, his efforts to get to create a unified theory. And so I did a, a fair amount of research and, and read some biographies of Einstein. And uh, one of the funny things is I was I was reading, I was I was looking into papers. There was one paper that was uh, written by Gerard de Hooft, uh, a very renowned Dutch uh, physicist who won the Nobel Prize. And uh, he wrote a paper claiming that perhaps Einstein's approach to, to getting a theory of everything may have been uh, the correct one he, uh, because Einstein believed in a classical, sort of an older-fashioned approach using the equations of classical physics, whereas most physicists, you know, most things like string theory and loop quantum gravity, these are quantum theories. Their, their basis is quantum mechanics. But but Tehuft was saying, well, actually, maybe Einstein was right. Maybe a classical approach would work better. And uh, anyway, I was, I was reading this paper, fascinated by it, and then I looked in the references and... One of the references is a paper that I co-wrote with my professor at Princeton in, in, in astrophysics, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, I thought, this is amazing. I'm a part of this quest somehow, so I have to write about it. And your protagonist, David Swift, is uh, the author in the book of a paper similar to the paper that you actually yeah, yeah, it's a complete rip off of my real life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. th- this, this, um, David Swift is, is like me in a way. He, he, uh, studied physics in college and wanted to be a physicist, but never actually became one. And so now is sort of on the periphery writing about it for a general audience. Now you have, you have an unusual background actually because I didn't know about it, but you, you have a bachelor's in astrophysics from Princeton. Right. And then you went off and got a, a master's in, in, in poetry. poetry. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I was very impressionable as a young man, and uh, I um, there were lots of girls I liked, and so I would write poems <laughs> about them. And uh, it struck me, you know, I, I, it struck me that physics and poetry were really not that far apart because you're trying to appreciate the wonders of the universe. And so I thought, okay, you know, I, I after I, I finished uh, Princeton and, and and wrote that paper on relativity, I thought, okay, I'm going to try poetry for a while. And then, of course, I got a master's in poetry, and then I needed to get a job. Mm-hmm. So I went into journalism, and here I am. Wasn't it John Keats who said that Newton had uh, 
destroyed the beauty of the rainbow by figuring out what it was. Oh, he was crazy for saying that. Exactly. I, I, I think, you know, look, the more you understand about the universe, the more beautiful it appears. I mean, look, look at all the things out there, dark matter and dark energy. What are these if not poetic concepts? Yeah, the, the, the more you, you learn, I think, the more you realize how much you don't know and how much more, you know, awe-inspiring everything becomes. Right. And, and the final theory is uh, a good um, framework for this kind of search because th- this is the ultimate, you know, the, you're looking for the, the blueprints of creation, you know, the, the, the God's handiwork. And that's what Einstein was after. He always wanted to know the secrets of the old one. And the characters in my novel are also fascinated by it. I mean, there's there's practical reasons why they have to find the theory. They're being chased by, you know, horrible mercenaries and FBI agents. But at the same time, they're inspired by the idea of maybe we can be the first to actually see this theory. And, and they're very excited about that. Well, the book is a real page turner. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, because I know you, I was thinking, what, how did, how did all this stuff just kind of come out of his head? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, but I mean, part of it is you, you um, when, when writing, sitting down to write a novel, at least for me, um, I, I sort of pl- had most of the plot uh, um, arranged, and I knew I, I, where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted it to be a chase novel, and I knew I wanted to involve as much fun science as I could. So I knew I wanted to uh, make a stop at the Robotics Institute, for example, at Carnegie Mellon, because that's a really cool place. And uh, I knew I really wanted to end up at uh, Fermilab and at the Particle Collider there, the Tevatron, because that is really cool. And uh, and then there were all sorts of stops on the way, you know, uh, some of them not related to science. I, I'm fascinated by uh, West Virginia, for example, and there's, so there's chapters in there. And then I'm also really interested in, in military technology, and so the characters all start going down to Fort Benning and, and doing the virtual reality combat there. And so I guess, yeah, for me, you know, novel is, you know, a collection of all the things that fascinate you. You're a full-time editor at Scientific American. When did you write this? Whenever I could. You know, I also have kids too so it's not like i can just you know come home and write at the time but i i found the time one of the funniest moments was uh occasionally uh you know with young kids you're always taking them to birthday parties that's if anyone who has young kids knows about that and so while i while i took my my daughter to one of these parties um you know the kids are playing they're doing you know uh, eating cake or eating pizza or, or, or musical chairs. And so I'm in the corner busy writing the novel because I figure, okay, I have maybe half an hour here and, you know, maybe an hour I can, I, and then some of the other parents come up to me and they say, what are you doing? Are you taking notes on the birthday party? This is very strange. And I say, no, no, actually I'm writing a novel. And they go, tell me about it. And then I've completely lost all the time. Right, so. right. There's a famous photo, maybe you've seen it, of Einstein at home with two young children working on his physics while he's holding one of the kids. Yeah, well, yeah. with Einstein, of course, you know, his his family uh, relations are always a, a sore point. I mean, uh, he, he had all the problems with Maleva, his first wife, and uh, uh, his kids, you know, he was separated from them after they divorced. And it's and, all in the book, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I threw some of that in there. Because it, it's interesting to, to go into his personal life. I mean, in, in some ways, in his personal relationships, he could seem very cold because he was so focused on the physics to the exclusion of everything else. But on the other hand, he could be an incredibly charming man, and his feelings for humanity in general were incredibly idealistic. So, fascinating guy. You know, a lot of people uh, have this dream of writing a novel, and you've actually now written one that's been published. But just for the people who, uh, who you know, maybe don't stick with it a lot, tell everybody how many books, how many novels you've actually written. Well, this is the, the fifth novel I've written. I had four before this that didn't sell. Um, 
And, uh, well, I have to say two of them were not very good anyway, but, but, you know, you gotta just keep at it. I mean, you got, and also you gotta love it, cause you know, the chances of getting published, frankly, are, are, it's, it's, it's an incredibly tough, tough high hurdle to, to cross. And so you really have to enjoy the process. So I had a lot of fun reading Final Theory. You know, I had no idea whether it would get published or not. It's a total crapshoot. You just said reading it. Did you mean writing? I meant writing. Sorry. <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing Final Theory. Um, you know, even though I knew that getting published would be, a, you know, a total crapshoot, I, I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I, I'm not gonna write anything here unless I'm having fun doing yeah. it because that's that's what keeps you going. Right. So just remember, if you're if you're working on that third unpublished novel, you know, Mark went through four before he hit the fifth that actually got printed. I, I think people just just keep keep at it. I mean, I, I always took it when when people told me just keep at it, just keep at it. I thought. They're just telling me that, you know, that doesn't, you know, and I didn't quite believe it. But, you know, I kept at it anyway, so. So, uh, final theory. Why don't you read the first, just the first paragraph of the book? Hans Walter Kleinman, one of the great theoretical physicists of our time, was drowning in his bathtub. A stranger with long, sinewy arms had pinned Hans's shoulders to the porcelain bottom. See, after that, you're going to keep reading. Exactly. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. According to a study of over 100,000 people, most injuries related to bunk beds involve people between 18 and 21 years of age. Story two. Starting this week, astronauts will attempt to fix a broken toilet on the International Space Station. Story three, researchers have a new estimate for the mass of the Milky Way, and it's about a trillion times that of our sun. And story four, movie star Hedy Lamarr invented and patented signal technology that is used today in cell phones. Time's up. Story four is true. Hedy Lamarr invented a way to continuously change radio frequencies. The intent at the time was to make radio-guided weapons less open to detection, but the technology has become useful in numerous wireless transmission systems. For more, check out the June 3rd article on our website called Hedy Lamarr, Not Just a Pretty Face. Thank you, thank you, Hedy, thank you. It's not... Hedy, it's Hedley, Hedley Lamar. What the hell are you worried about? This is 1874. You'll be able to sue her. <laughs> Story three is true. The Milky Way weighs in at about a trillion solar masses, according to research that will be published in the Astrophysical Journal. One of the researchers was quoted in an article at Space.com as saying that the Milky Way is slimmer than previously thought. That's because the Milky Way has less chocolate. I mean, less dark matter. And story two is true. The liquid waste toilet on the space station has been out of commission for weeks, and by the time you hear this, astronauts will have commenced to command the commode. In space, no one can hear you flush. All of which means that story one about most bunk bed injuries happening to people between 18 and 21 is totally bogus. But what is true is that 18 to 21-year-olds form a second, smaller clustering of bunk bed injury victims, the big group being kids under 10. The study appears in the June issue of the journal Pediatrics. The authors could not pinpoint a reason for the injury rate among the 18 to 21-year-olds, when I was a little kid, I slept in the top bunk with my brother in the bottom bunk. He was 10 years older, so I know from personal experience that a potential cause of the injury rate for the older kids is younger kids swooping down on them from the upper bunk. 
Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news, videos, and slideshows, and sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Meeting is adjourned. It is? No, you say that, Governor. What? Meeting is adjourned. It is? Yeah, play around with this for a while. Oh, no, thank you, Hetty. No, it's Headley. It is?